and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad that you are here. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis. Just kidding. John chapter, John chapter six. For you, the folks that are new here, the reason they're laughing uh, is we've been in John six for a little while here, and uh, so months ago when we began John six, I tried to explain the epic nature of this chapter, not just that it's longer than other chapters, but that the depth, the meaning in what Jesus has taught at this deeper level, meaning who Jesus is as the Son of God, Savior come to save the world, what that means on an actual function with us. So uh, over the course of the preaching through chapter 6 of John, I've kept pointing out the, the shape of this chapter like a funnel starts wide and gets narrow uh and when chapter six begins it's just jesus alone with the 12 disciples and then they're there at least the disciples think they're there for a little r and r little rest and relaxation but then all these thousands of people start flocking in there but right away uh it, it grows to 20 25,000 people but right away the thousands of followers have followed jesus uh they have deserted the place uh and you could even say these people um had followed Jesus, at least uh, they could. They thought he was God. They saw him do these great miracles. They saw that, but they began to leave. It funnels down. This is where we see the funnel work. At the beginning, the chapter, uh, they want to see Jesus do more miracles. They want to take him and make him king by force and throw the Romans out. They want Jesus to make their lives better. This is key for you to understand as well. They see that Jesus could be uh, this person that finally makes their life happy, gives them joy, provides everything for them. But Jesus begins to teach and begins uh, to funnel things down. People start to peel away. They defect as he preaches. And they get upset with what Jesus has to say about the body being the bread, his body being the bread uh, that they must eat, they must consume, and his blood being the drink that will give true life, eternal life. They don't like that. Now, they don't like what he says about being a follower that his heavenly father must call them to follow him. And they get upset. They leave in the thousands. Now, as the day ends with Jesus back alone with the 12, just like the chapter began. And where we find ourselves now is, well, some very deep meaning. Now, like many parts of John that we found, some of the most important uh, meaning, most important parts of it have been in these little tiny verses there. If you dig, uh, you can find them, but you can just kind of read over them and miss them altogether. And so we want to take Scripture and then use other Scripture to dig with the Scripture. We call that Scripture interpreting Scripture. We don't use outside sources. We might use analogies, but the idea is we use Scripture. There's some stuff that I would say both in here will strengthen your faith, but will also make uh, you shake in fear a little bit here too. Um, this will scare you a little bit, these verses. At least it does me. Now, how can that be? Well, think of it like this. When I drive my Jeep, yes, another Jeep analogy, uh, there's these things called shelf roads. Have you ever heard of them? Now, you may not be able to hear what I'm about to say here, because you're going to watch this. They're called that because they're on the side of a steep mountain, sometimes a vertical mountainside, and yet there's this narrow road that's carved into the side of the rock. It's scary, I know. It'll make your knees shake. It's that edge of the road that you need to be worried about. It's a steep drop-off. But then you also need to put your faith right in the road. It's a scary road. If you follow the tracks, you'll be safe, but it's scary. You see what I'm saying here? Now, the last few verses of John 6 are kind of like this. The false believers, they have left after they have heard Jesus teach. 
They go, this road, we can't handle it. It's too, too scary. Plus, there's a drop off there. All except uh, one, uh, we'll get to that soon, uh, will follow him to the end. There's, there's one that we'll talk about, Judas. So there's only 12 left here at the end. And talk about that edge of the road being steep and steep drop and a scary road when we talk about Judas. Well, before we go any further, let's just stop and pray and ask God to bless our time as we dive into chapter 6. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit move in such a way that we would hear you and see in our Bibles your words and understand them. We want to know who you, you are, Jesus. We want to understand who you are. So it's my prayer that you would speak to each person here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're right here at the end of chapter 6. We, we find Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's ending with the 12 that he's called. What seems like a failure in the world's eyes, thousands that had wanted to make him king that morning, now just 12 after he spoke. Now let's look at it again just to remember where we're at. Verse 63 through 66, John chapter 6. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Notice the capital S, the Holy Spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and, and, and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who these were who did not believe and who it was would, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, Jesus does something unexpected here. You might think he's going to try and say something to his remaining disciples like, hey guys, don't worry, I got this figured out, we'll do better soon, we'll get more people, just hang tight with me, I promise things are going to get better. No, that's not the message that he gives. In fact, he says this in verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? I think this is amazing, I do. If it had been me, I would have been trying to get them to stay. Like, stay with me, guys. It's going to be okay. But Jesus is saying, are you going to leave too? You? Now, if you're new to the faith or new to studying Jesus or what we call Christology, when Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's asking the question for a purpose. And that is for us to learn something. So it's a really simple question but not a shallow question. It's deep, it's dangerous, it's the side of the shelf road, right? You don't want to drive off this road here. Now, when Jesus says, do you want to go away as well, it must have hurt those guys at least a little bit. Because Jesus is saying, look, this road we're about to travel, is it's tough, baby. Now, how could Jesus ask this question? They, they had stuck with him through thick and thin. Will you go away we're with you, Jesus. You're the, you're the Messiah. Now, listen to Jesus ask this question to you personally. Will you go away as well in the end? Will you leave my side when things get hard on this road? Now, think about that. Ask the question of yourself. Will we be the guy or girl that heard the word of God and we've even believed the word, professed belief in Jesus, but then turned back? We go, that road, not that road. You see, at least some of those that have left and followed Jesus, uh, they had been following up to this point for three years. They'd seen his miracles. Not talking about the 12, those two, but People that had left, they had eaten the bread and the fish the night before. Their tummies had been filled with his miracle. He says, will you leave, will you leave like they did? Now, you might be wondering, Paul, why ask this question? I thought one of the doctrines of grace, one of the dogs was perseverance of the saints, perseverance of the believers, us. And, and yes, that's right. Those who believe will keep on believing. So why does Jesus ask this question to his disciples, to us, and all those who uh, call ourselves disciples? It's a relevant question. 
because of a few big reasons that I think will open our spiritual eyes on our own salvation. Now listen carefully as I read Peter's response to the question, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, don't you just love Peter? You're jumping in and answering, hey, everybody get back. Let me answer. For Peter, the thought of turning back is unthinkable. He goes, I don't even want to consider that thought. I'm on this road with you, this, this scary road. In other words, he's thinking about his past life, what what he had placed his trust in in the past, his hope, he's thinking about a sin that he was involved in. None of that had paid off. Nothing in the world had to offer filled him with purpose, love, not a job, not religion, not sex, not relationships. What are the words Peter uses to describe what he has found in Jesus? He says, you have the what? You have the words of eternal life. Now, what's he also saying in this is that nothing else he has ever heard has the same word power. Notice that when he says that in the next part, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, notice he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples. He uses the term we. He's lived with these other guys for almost three years now. He knows their faith, doesn't he? They have seen what he has seen. So he says, we have believed. Past tense, up to current tense. All right, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He said, we've walked together. We know this. We're, all, we're with you. Now, a little side note here. Look at the name Peter calls Jesus in 69. This is free part of the sermon. All right, it's all free. But this is interesting. He says that you are the Holy One of God. Underline that in your Bible. That's not a name that a person has called Jesus before. It's a correct name. He is the Holy One of God. And someone has called him that, but not a person. Jesus has been called this before. But do you know who it is? It's going to creep you out, but it's pretty cool. Mark chapter 1, verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Notice the plural. This is a demon speaking, a fallen angel. I know who you are. Look, the Holy One of God. Now, if you keep reading this passage, Jesus casts this demon out. Now, do you get it? A demon or demons, many have called Jesus this before. Why? Well, because demons are fallen angels. They know Jesus before they had sinned. They know he is the Holy One of God before they had seen. They knew him face to face, didn't they? They recognized Jesus because they had been in his presence. Freaky, I know. So when Peter uses this term, it's a correct term, but he's the first person. He's seen something that happens only in heaven. Now notice something else about the name, the Holy One of God. It doesn't say the Holy One with God. This is pointing to Jesus' position as the Son of God himself. One of the three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead. Now back to Peter's answer to Jesus. He's saying, what else would we go back to? You have the words of life. We believe. Now let's ask the question again. This is the shelf road. So think about this carefully. Put it in first gear, go slow. The other disciples, the big crowd that had left, they said they had believed but had left. Why had they? Li- why did they leave? The great 19th century preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this. It's dated language, but see if you can understand it. He says there is a constant winnowing going on in all churches, and this drives away the light and chaffy ones. There is a fan at work upon the floor. Be not as the chaff, better far that we die than we deny the Lord. 
Now the language is dated, I know. Spurgeon is speaking to farmers here. Maybe you get what he's saying. Essentially, he's talking about the process of separating the wheat, the harvest, from the chaff that surrounds the wheat and the stem, separating the actual wheat from just the the worthless part. Now when they would do that separation back in the day, they needed uh, a good solid breeze. That would be blowing. As they would separate the wheat from the stems. Or what we call the chaff that surrounds the wheat. They would throw all of it into the air after they've crushed it. And the chaff would would be light. And the breeze would blow it further. And it would pile up and they would burn it. The wheat then, being heavier, would fall right to the ground. Would be gathered up, put in the barn. Spurgeon is saying this is constantly happening in every church. Inside every church, there are disciples that claim to follow Jesus. But as God's word is preached and life happens, it's like a wind begins to blow the chaff away. They begin peeling away from the church. Now, when I was praying and contemplating, preaching verse by verse through the gospel of John, I knew what Jesus preached. And it would make some people mad. And they would leave just, just like they left him. It would work just like it did with Jesus. And well, some have. And for preachers like me, I want, I want you to like me. I do. Like I, 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 it's a sinful thing. I want you to like me. So I, I hate it when I see people leave. So why do they leave? What I found is that when they hear the words of Jesus and hear his claims, unlike Peter, they seem to be saying, maybe, maybe there's some better words that another church could give me from another preacher that would fill me up because this stuff from Jesus just isn't working for me. So they go and search for a church that I call, when you go and look from church to church, I call it steeple chasing. Pretty original, I know. Now, hear me, I'm not claiming to be the best preacher. I'm not even claiming to be a good preacher. But I will say this. I do preach what Jesus says. And I stick to the word of God like a drowning man sticks to a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. And and let me just say that sometimes that upsets people. As believers, we have to stay strong on the word of God. As a church, we have to stay strong on that. There are few churches that are doing that these days. To be faithful to the biblical text and to persevere in our testimony, to hold on to our testimony to the grace of God in Christ Jesus with lasting conviction. We must dive into that gospel and then we must drive that scary road of walking life where we hold on to scripture alone. Sola Scriptura, one of the five solas. Look, it's not really hard to get a big audience for a church. Many people will come and listen, but not many people will stay. When Jesus asked the question, will you turn away too? Why had those people, other people turned away? I mean, they'd followed him some for three years. They wanted what they thought Jesus could give them. They didn't want Jesus himself. They certainly didn't want to walk this road that shelf road. They didn't want to give up everything and follow him. Now, when I say something like that, it's easy for most of us to say, but I will. But will you? When it really gets tough? What if Jesus says, what if Jesus says no to the thing you've been praying for and asking most for? Would that be a deal breaker? What if he says no to healing you? Will you stay and follow as a true disciple or will you be looking for something else? Something that with a little bit more pizzazz give you some joy. What if Jesus says something in scripture that you disagree with? What if he says no to healing your depression? Come on now, did I just step on your toes? What if he doesn't give you the job or the house, or the children that you think will finally make you happy? What if he uses all that hard stuff 
to mold and shape you. Will you still take that shelf road? Will you follow Jesus? Let's get back to chapter 6. All of uh, chapter 6 here. We're coming to the end. Jesus is getting at something much more insidious in this next part. Jesus says in verse 70, the first part of verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? Now, when Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, he's not referring to election that we see in the doctrines of grace. That's not what he's saying. It is election in the sense he says, I chose you. That's what election means. But he's not talking about salvation here. Election, that's a solid doctrine. We see it all through John and indeed the entire Bible. But that's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to, watch. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for one of the twelve was going to betray him. Now, out of the twelve disciples that have stayed, one is a devil. Now, this is going to take some unpacking, but this is fascinating. Hang with me. Peter has just said, hey, we're with you. But Jesus is saying something staggering to me, especially to them. Let me see if I can give you another way to to say what Jesus is saying. This is my loose translation, the Pastor Paul uh, translation here. All right, I think Jesus is saying something like this. Yes, Peter, I know you're with me. In fact, I chose you for a specific purpose in following me as one of my disciples. But I also chose one of you who is a devil, and he's going to betray me. And I chose him for a purpose. Now notice in your Bible, that word betrayed is not mentioned by Jesus here. That's supplied to us by John. Because John had seen that happen. Now these 12 disciples, and I would argue even Judas, they do not know yet what he's talking about. They don't think Judas is planning to betray Jesus yet. Even Judas doesn't think that yet. I don't think. But he will betray Jesus, and Jesus already knows this. So this begs us to ask the question, why why does Jesus choose Judas to be in the 12 if he knows he's going to betray him? Now, to get that answer, we have to begin with the end in mind. Jesus' plan all along was the cross, wasn't it? To die a sinner's death on behalf of those that would believe in him as Savior and Lord. Someone say amen. So Jesus would be raised to life by the Father on the morning of the third day. Because only God has the power over life and death. It proves that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Now all of this, all of this is to do what? To bring glory to God and that the Father would then glorify the Son. That's the end result of all of this. But still, if Jesus knew Judas would betray him, he must have chosen him for the task, right? Now, we'll unpack that more in the next couple of weeks, but just hold on tight to that thought. A little side note that I don't want us to miss here is look what Jesus calls Judas, a devil. I find this interesting. There are theologians, scholars that that would argue you could translate that this should be translated translated Judas is the devil or Satan. That doesn't mean that Judas and the devil are the same entity, but through Judas's actions, we'll see the devil's plans for Jesus's death carried out. Again, we'll get to this more. I want us to understand this, but just like when believers in Christ are called to life by the Spirit of God and the command of the Father and are saved... There is the calling of life, being born again, we've called it. But there is also a belief that we must do. We must believe, shouldn't we? That It's that parallel track that we're chosen, elected. You still must believe. Both of those things are true. God is sovereign and we are responsible to believe. With Judas, Satan will work through him to try and achieve his evil purposes. But at the same time, Judas will also want to do this. It will be his decision. Isn't that interesting? Both of those things are true. We'll look at that more. Ultimately, it is God using all of this in his sovereignty to achieve his purpose, his providence. That's hard for us to begin to understand. Christian writer 
And speaker Joni Erickson Tata has this great quote. She says this. I hope you'll grab a hold of this. She says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The whole drama of the cross was orchestrated by God. I mean, everyone involved, including Judas, the Jewish leaders, even Satan himself, were a means to that end. The cross was the ultimate, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Isn't that right? And that is the mystery of how God works in his providence, his plans, through his total control, his sovereignty. Now the point is that Jesus has chosen Judas, a disciple who will betray him to death, to be part of the inner inner circle right up to the last moments. Now with that in mind, let's think about Jesus' question again. He says, do you want to go away as well? Judas and Peter and all the 12 disciples are hearing this, right? Let's look at the relevance in four different ways. Would you look at this? Write these down. Number one, some who hear the question from Jesus are not true Christians and will turn away. Some who hear the question from Jesus are not true Christians and will turn away. Like the crowd, some will just turn away and leave and try to, well, find life and happiness somewhere else. Meaning. But some will betray Jesus. I have no doubt that there are some today in the visible church, I mean the church today in the United States, those who are alive in the church, who will betray Jesus in the end. You know this to be true, don't you? There are some who profess to be believers in Christ who even hold positions of leadership in the larger church. Those people who go to church their whole lives who aren't saved. I'm not pointing at anyone here at Bentry. I'm not. But in the church today, maybe even in the future at Bentry. Man, I I just got word of a friend of mine that served Christ faithfully for years as a pastor that has left the faith. His parents, wonderful saints, his brother, a pastor, he's left the faith. Now he spends his time producing podcasts of why you as a Christian are an idiot if you believe Jesus. Now how do we account for that kind of guy? Did he lose his faith? Did he lose his salvation? The Apostle John addressed this very thing in 1 John 1, 2. You might want to turn turn there. There uh, there were what seemed to be faithful Christians in the church that then had left the church and then were trying to get others to leave the church and reject Christ. John answers the question, were they saved? Did they lose their salvation? He says this in verse 19. They went out from us, talking about the people that had left, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. You following his logic? But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, like in the early church time, when the apostle John is talking here, there are some in that early church who claim to be true believers, but they weren't. Like Judas, Jesus had allowed them into the church at least for a short time. But notice, how do we know who the real believers are? John says, for if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. In other words, here it is, real believers will persevere, follow Christ, and be part of the church to the end of their life. This is how we'll know. Real believers will persevere, follow Christ Jesus, and be part of the church To the end of their life. But John doesn't leave it there, does he? He doesn't leave it there. John is strong here because false believers will eventually turn away from Christ Jesus and leave the church, proving they are false believers. You see what John's doing here? He's saying, not only will true believers stay, he says false believers will always go in the end. 
This blows my mind. Now, please get this. Those that left the church, those that stopped believing in Christ Jesus, they didn't lose their salvation. Listen, listen, listen. They were never saved. It shook some of you, didn't it? They appeared to believe. They may have believed at some mental level, but they were never born again. And how do we know that? Because they turned from Christ, they left the church. Now hear me out. We're not saying that anyone who ever leaves Bent Tree Church or any church is not saved. No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. We have other great churches right here in town alongside us. Derby Hill on the south side of Loveland. My buddy, Pastor Dave Harry, awesome church. Or Grace Community Church with Eric Miller. Wonderful church. Or Faith Church just over on Wilson, just to the west of us. You could go there. They're great. Great churches. Don't go there. You like me better, don't you? By the way, you don't, they don't wear Hawaiian shirts. I'm just saying. By the way, you don't go, don't go there. You are known here. You're a member here at one time. Uh, I'm talking about this hopping of church to church. When you find the church God has given you, go to that church. There are good reasons to leave a church. You serve with the family, you're under elders, you're under spiritual accountability, there's spiritual authority. Maybe God will lead some of you from this church to other church churches to serve alongside those believers or maybe even start new churches. Come on now. Maybe even calling you to a foreign land of becoming a missionary to an unreached people group. But even then, you were part of a local church or what we call the body of Christ. But the point is, false believers will pull away from Jesus and the evidence, among other things, is they will stop attending a Bible-believing church. And some will then even try to hurt the church body once they leave. Back to Jesus' question, will you leave too? Number two, Some who hear the question from Jesus will deny him for a time, but are still true believers and they will return. Some who hear the question from Jesus will deny him for a time, but are still true believers and they will return. They're wrestling. They've backslidden. Now this was the apostle Peter, wasn't it? Peter did this exact same thing. Peter was born again. He was the guy who answered Jesus' question in this story correctly. And on the night before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, the next day Jesus again points out that one of them will betray Jesus. Now look at Peter's answer in Matthew 26, verse 35. This is the night Jesus was betrayed. He says, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other, all the disciples said the same. Now notice that it wasn't just Peter that pledged his very physical life to Jesus. All the other disciples did that too. And yet they all ran when Jesus is arrested. Even Peter denied Jesus, didn't he? When the servant girl, little girl, comes up, you afraid of a little girl, Peter? Yes, he was. Are you, are you with that man, Jesus? No, I'm not, Peter says. Three times, Peter denies Jesus, and the last time, calls down curses on himself. He says, in God's name, I don't know the man. And yet, through Jesus' efficacious call on Peter, And Jesus is forgiveness. Peter does return to following Jesus. He lives the rest of his life following Jesus and died a martyr's death for preaching the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, maybe this is you right now. Maybe you've claimed Christ in the past, but right now you have been denying him with the way you live or you're with your words. Return to the grace that is in the Lord. Come back to the church. Engage. Quit sinning. Repent of not following Jesus. Turn from your sin. Kill the sin or it will be killing you. And maybe you think you've done too much to return. Man, I've been there. 
I've, I've just done too much. I promise you, Jesus' grace is enough. It, it, it's enough. It was for Peter. It was for me. It is for you too. Look at that third way to answer Jesus' question. Here it is. Number three, some will hear the question from Jesus, will return and follow a secular I'm sorry, some will hear the question from Jesus, will turn and follow a secular ideology and claim it is the true gospel, but in the end, it is simply another false religion. I'm going to have to get a second screen because my points are getting long. Some who hear the question from Jesus will turn and follow a secular ideology and claim it is the true gospel, but in the end, it's simply another false religion. Some of you in this audience are falling to this. If you hear, I'm sorry, if you were here in the fall of last year, you heard me preach on false religions where you take a secular ideology and you mix it with Christianity. Christian nationalism is for one. Thinking our goal is to keep America a moral place. Combining the Christian Uh, gospel with the American dream. Let me tell you, that is deadly, deadly poison. I see this kind of stuff on social media from people who claim to be Christians all the time. Just as much poison, though, as so many who have fallen to taking the gospel and taking woke ideology and combining that together in what is essentially communism, It's not just those two sides, though. There are tons of others. We could go on following Christ and try to add that to our salvation. The truth is, if you combine the gospel with any other work or belief system, it is no longer the gospel. I mean, it can even be what we consider very good stuff like family or jobs or the environment or government, you name it. If it becomes the thing we follow instead of Jesus, it becomes death. It is a turning away from Jesus. That brings up the last one I've got to share for us. I've got to say this is so deadly because on the surface, it doesn't seem deadly at all. So listen closely. Is this you, my friend? Number four, some who hear the question from Jesus will turn and follow a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Some who hear the question from Jesus will turn and follow a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, if you've heard me preach very long, you might have heard me mention this phrase before, moralistic, therapeutic deism. The term comes from a 2005 book titled Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of the American Teenagers by the sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. These authors coined the term to describe what young adults, teenagers in 2005, and I would argue now the entire nation believes, because those 2005 teenagers are all adults, there are five statements that the authors found that summed up what these Christian teenagers thought. 3,000. You don't have to write these down. They're wrong. You can write them down, but this is what they said they believed. By the way, false doctrine warning. All right, here it is. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's deism. There's something out there that created the universe, they said. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible by, and by most world religions. That's the moralistic part. Number three, the, center, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. There's the therapeutic part of it. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. There's deism again. Again, we see this in the world, don't we? Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
so close to the truth, and yet it's a lie. This is how most people who call themselves Christians in the United States would say, how you get to heaven. Just be a good person. Moralistic. None of those are correct. But the danger with any, with all of them, is that they're so very close to the truth, and yet they are wrong. I mean, by the way, these are the lies that do the most damage, aren't they? The ones that sound so good, but they're wrong. Jesus is always asking the question, will you turn away from me? Two. Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to ask, am I, a, am I following Christ the way he's asked me to follow him? Or have we fallen for a lie? Here's how we know. The answer <clears throat> must be like Peter's or even more complete answer like the Apostle Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. This will help us dig at this. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus becomes the center of our lives, our focus, if we are believers. We don't focus on ourselves anymore. We don't care what you think of us. Life begin, becomes about Jesus. And in doing that, the world and its promises of a good life no longer have the same draw that it once had. All right, second half of B. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now notice what Paul is saying, the priority of once he held, once he, he once held so important as he says, I just count it as a pile of garbage, like rotten food that I, that was in a refrigerator. You ever had that refrigerator goes bad like three days? You open, you go, woo! He says, my best stuff are like that compared to knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. Look at verse 9. And being found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The apostle Paul could have been a Pharisee. He had been a Pharisee at one time. He had trained all his life to be one as a youth. So the very basis of that false religion, Phariseeism, false religion, is being self-righteous enough that God would say, look how righteous, look how good that guy is. I got to let him into heaven. But Paul says, I found the real righteousness is only in Christ Jesus. That's what he has placed his faith in to save him. Not on being good enough. Because he can't be good enough. Can we? We can't be good enough. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Sufferings. That's that road, that shelf road. Paul is saying his old life is dead and that Christ's sufferings uh, was because of his sin, our sin, and that the power of spiritual resurrection has taken place in us. But he is also pointing to his physical resurrection. One day, he says, he says that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Now, folks, that's what this is all about. Notice that the connotation is that it's not just a resurrection from the dead, but a resurrection then to life, life in Christ Jesus. We're waiting on that. Here it is, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it his own. This is what we've talked about so many times before. Paul is saying that we live in the in-between. We're saved, but we're not home yet. Our freedom from sin has been purchased by Jesus' blood on the cross. We have been given his righteousness as believers in Jesus. But that we wait for the final fulfillment of Christ's return and being made complete. Amen? That's what we wait for. While we are here on this planet, it's a rough road. We fight sinful temptations. Martin Luther said, we as believers are simultaneously justified before God, yet still sinners. 
Both of those are true. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear me. This verse helps me so very much. Forgetting my past and looking on towards heaven to the prize in Christ Jesus. Not that we literally forget. That's not what it's saying. But we don't let the past dictate what we do in Christ in the future. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the prayer that we pray every day. In some form, God, help me to live my life for you. It's going to be hard today, God. But I call on you and I trust you. To attain the prize, the life in Christ, the eternal relationship with God, without the weight of sin, to become who we were fully designed to be. An assurance of our salvation, to cast off all those distractions in our lives that have held us for so long following Christ. Here's what I want to leave us with. If you have faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're truly united with him through the miracle of a new birth or being born again by the Holy Spirit, then there is no way for you to go but forward to follow Christ. To ascend bent trees, discipleship pathway we've talked so much about to grow in our spiritual maturity by serving and loving others. But listen, that, that road is hard. It's a shelf road. It's difficult. Think back to Peter's words when he answers in verse 68, 69 of John 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a chord that that Peter speaks of here may not be real evident. A cord that holds him to Christ, a threefold cord. First, he says, there is nowhere else to go. Second, Peter had learned that there is no real satisfaction that can be only found in Jesus Christ. Nothing else satisfies. And third, Peter makes the confession that, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we're reminded once again of the the power of your blood to purchase our freedom, we're humbled. If you're not a believer, if you would just look up here with me. If you're a Christian, if you would be praying for me, praying for these people. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, here's what the gospel is. Your sin, the things where you've fallen short of God's glorious plan. He says, that stuff makes you an enemy of God. You are, your penalty is your eternal death. But Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what that means. God has made a way to redeem you, to buy you back out of slavery, to give you, to give you a life in him by the death of his son Jesus. Here's what we mean. His death, if you believe, pays for your sin in Christ Jesus. And we call it the great exchange because not only does his death pay for your sin you give him your sin he gives you the righteousness that he lived it's added to your account so that when God looks at you he no longer sees your sin it's been washed away so how do you believe believe in your heart right here not your physical beating instrument but the core of you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really that simple. Do you believe that? Well, my friend, you're born again. So pray this. 
God, show me how to follow you. Show me, help my unbelief become belief. Show me how to walk with you. After our gathering today, there'll be elders up here with their wives. And if you would, just if you've prayed that prayer, just come and talk to them and say, I have become a Christian today. Ask them, what's next? What do I do in that? And they'll pray with you. But let's end our prayer like this. Thank you for saving me, God. This is every Christian. Pray that. Thank you for saving me, God. Help me to become everything you've called me to be. Help me to get rid of sin in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, take the communion cup out. This is for anyone who calls themselves a believer. If you've been baptized in the church, you can take this. If you've not been baptized, if you're not a believer yet, don't take this. This is only for Christians. If you would, carefully open the top, reveal the the juice, and the bottom has the little cracker in it. We do this once a month, and The blood represents Jesus's, I mean, the juice represents Jesus's blood. The cracker represents his flesh. What we're doing is we're celebrating communion, that, that last supper on the night Jesus was betrayed when he took the bread and he broke it, snapped that little piece of bread. You hear it snapping all over. He says, this is my body broken for you. And just like in John 6, When he says, you must consume me, this is the picture of what we're doing. Taking his word into us. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Just like in John 6, again, he says, you must drink my blood for it is true drink. It gives eternal life. This is the blood that paid for our sins. As we remember, as we experience that grace right now, this is the blood of Christ. Take and drink. We trust you, God, with all our hearts that you will come for us soon. But until you come, help us to be faithful in remembering your blood spilled for our transgressions and our body, your body broken for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.